What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. In today's show, I am going to be having a conversation with Miss Nellie Reed. Now, Nellie is the co-founder and managing director of Meehan Green, which is an Irish um, environmental sustainability consulting business. And um, they're based here in Ireland. They provide clients from the built environment that could be architects, engineers, landlords, developers, or it could be government bodies. And what they do is they provide expert advice and guidance on how to deliver green buildings. Now, why would you need to listen to this? Well, I believe it's critical because survival in the real estate or property investment business is all about managing risks. And managing risk, you know, a long-term career in this business is all about managing the ups and downs. There's going to be ups and downs. You're not going to predict them. You're not going to expect them to come along, but they will come along and it's how you manage them. And today, one of the biggest risks facing this entire industry is undoubtedly climate change. And that is evidenced by just the growth of ESG as an investment buzzword, we'll say. I mean, I'm hearing it all the time these days. And in the past, that was not a, a term that I heard much at all. Also, carbon emissions, the, the reduction of carbon emissions and the buzzword carbon zero and carbon neutrality. All of this stuff is starting to kind of go mainstream. And I believe that your portfolio, whether you're up in managing big corporate offices or whether or not you're just investing in houses, residential investment stock, I just think that over the next couple of years, we all face, I mean, every single one of us faces a direct threat from potential government policy change around the climate. And that could be taxation, that could be legislation, and it could be through building regulations and, you know, improvements that you have to make to your buildings and things like that. Now, already the large corporate tenants that I deal with, a lot of them will not even consider leasing a building uh, unless its energy performance is very, very high. And um, that's something that has come in recently. It's outside of their mandate to even consider the building. Now, as you'll gather from our conversation today, and from particularly from her accent, Nellie was born and raised in the US. And she studied architecture, and she was able to turn her passion for environmental issues into a very successful career in sustainability. Anyway, I'm going to let Nellie tell her own story, but I really do recommend that you pay close attention to the message here. And that is that sustainability and climate risk is the future, and you really need to start paying attention to this stuff. And certainly, if you start to focus on this area now, you could actually find that you get ahead of your competition, your peers. So without further ado, my conversation with Nellie Reed. You are listening to Behind the Facade, the number one podcast for investing with a particular focus on real estate and property investment. I am your host, Gavin J. Gallagher, and on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game often playing out subconsciously, both in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and your behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. Welcome to the show. Nellie Reed. welcome to the show. Thank you. It's, it's good to, to have you. Here. 
<laughs> it's good to have you. And um, we're our mutual friend and uh, colleague, uh, Martin Meehan, has, has introduced us here. But um, I, I just wanted to, you know, today we're going to be going into all of this. And you, you have a long career in sustainability and sustainable design. And uh, so there's a lot of topics, relevant topics that we're going to cover. But um, to begin with, I thought we'd just start with, I always like to give the audience just a bit of sort of context. Um, can you give us like a 90 second uh, elevator pitch, we'll say, on who, who is Nellie Reed? Sure. Um, well, I uh, have an architecture background. I went to Rice University in Houston, Texas, a uh, long time ago, last millennium. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, even from a young age, I always wanted to focus on green building. My father was a real estate developer and my mother was a real estate lawyer. So I grew up, you know, at the dinner table, we were always talking about building design and construction. And it was the dilemma of does development have to mean destruction of the environment? Because I, I really was an environmental activist as a child uh, doing beach cleanups and local newspaper recycling as a kid. And um, I thought, well, I want to go to architecture school and learn how to design buildings that that are good for the environment and good for people and healthy places uh, for people to live and work. And so throughout my entire architecture career, my I was kind of ahead of the curve there because there wasn't sure. really a curriculum yet for sustainable design. It was just pure architecture school. And so I found it very interesting to take uh, courses in other departments like urban economics, and environmental economics was one of the classes I took at Rice. And I found that to probably be the best thing I ever did. The most interesting courses I took were not in the architecture department. <laughs> so I, I didn't really fit into the, the mold of the typical architecture student. Um, and then I was very fortunate because at Rice University, they have um, a very specialized program where they place you uh, in an internship, they call it a preceptorship. Um, when you're just getting out of the university, they place you in an architecture practice and you work there for a while to see if that's that's what you're interested in. And I was placed at Gensler and Gensler is a, a worldwide international design practice. Yeah. And I was kind of thrown into this big pot of you know thousands of people and I'd find myself and I actually, it was the perfect timing because it was 1998. And in 1998, people were just starting to talk about green buildings. And I just dove right in and it was the right time, the right place. Um, and I was able to define my own career path throughout um, my 14 years at Gensler. And I ended up going from being an intern to the director of sustainable design. And I trained over a thousand people at Gensler to be wow. sustainable design, uh, to, to have a kind of a baseline understanding and awareness of green building to embed it into the culture at Gensler. And from there, I had kind of gotten to a plateau where I had kind of done so much there that I thought what's next. And it just happened to be at the time that I was getting married and my husband's Irish. So we, decided to uh, for me to move to Ireland and um, no it, it was only maybe three months after we moved to Ireland that I started getting random phone calls from people who just googled uh, green building consultant in Ireland and my name came up right. so um, 
I wasn't even looking for work here. The work found me. And I gladly kind of reached out to clients and, and started working as a sole trader doing green building consulting. Um, shortly after that, I um, was introduced to Martin Meehan, who is now my business partner. So he has an architecture practice in Dublin that um, has been around for uh, more than two decades. And so we decided to create Meehan Green. And Meehan Green is a an independent sustainability consultant practice. So the concept we had was that we didn't want to be part of an architecture practice or part of an engineering practice. So we didn't right. want to be like Henry J. Lyons or Ethos or O'Connor Sutton Cronin or, you know, Scott Tellen Walker. We wanted to be able to work with all of those people and be independent and you. just uh, be kind of sustainable design advisors to larger organizations. And so because we are independent and third party, it opened us to work with the greatest number of people, which was the, what I wanted to do. I just wanted to influence as many projects as I could while maintaining a small business. So, so that's kind of where we are today. That's yeah, uh, th that's great because uh, I mean, obviously I've come across you through, through Martin and being based here in East Point myself. I, I've watched uh, the Oracle building block block A get built, and mm -hmm. um, and it's a real int so interesting for me because um, as the developer of that original building um, with Scott Allen Walker Architects, I saw it you know being built way back in the in the two thousands or it was it was actually nineteen nineties when that building was built, and to see it going through the the complete refurbishment, whereas it was stripped down to the concrete mm -hmm. and then redone. Um, it's been really interesting to watch that. And so it's great to be able to have this conversation to kind of understand more about all of that. Mm. Um, I just, one of the questions that I have is, you know, you've been clearly, it's so uh, you, you hit the, the ground running in terms of your career um, going in 1998 into Gensler and things like that is, is really interesting. And so you've been in the green and the sustainability space for over 20 years now. And can you tell me, in your view, has the evolution happened faster or slower than you anticipated? Oh, much slower, unfortunately. You, you thought it was going to rapidly. <laughs> I, I really thought, you know, in 1992, so when I was in high school, I was maybe 15, 16 years old. Al Gore wrote a book called Earth in the Balance. And he was that. a senator at that time. And I read that book and I remember taking it everywhere with me in the car, like on my way to some practice or, you know, the grocery store. And I was reading this book and I was so upset. I told my mother, I said, I can't believe what we're doing to the earth. Like, why is nobody paying attention? And that was, you know, 30 years ago. Like, and I definitely didn't think we'd still be where we are now uh, back then. Yeah. Um, so many other books and stories have come out since then, like An Inconvenient Truth by, uh, which was also Al Gore. I remember that, yeah. Um, oddly enough, like, and I, I don't mean to, it's not like I'm a sponsor of Al Gore, but it just happens to be that those two books were quite influential in my career. And Inconvenient Truth came out in 2006, which is right when I was actually at the height of my career within Gensler. And it was a turning point because around that time, 2005 is when people kind of had a wake up call of like, we do need to address climate change. Yeah. This is happening. We are starting to see like we had 
Hurricane Katrina and, you know, all these uh, catastrophic global um, events happening and people were realizing, okay, maybe they were right. You know, it was maybe kind of one tied. of those yeah. don't look up situations where you think, you know, maybe the scientists are right. And so what's interesting is in the mid 2000s, corporations were starting to kind of um, be enlightened pay and attention. say, you know, we do have to pay attention to this. So in the last 15 years, it's accelerated a lot more, but still not as fast as I expected it to. Mm. I think just my my view of what's happened is it doesn't seem to be until the investment community started to kind of really take note. And that was when Larry Fink wrote that letter about three, three years ago or thereabouts or four years ago. And that's where he said that climate change, climate risk is investment risk. I think that was the exactly. kind of, and that changed as, everything. Suddenly as, everyone is. As soon as you start talking about risk, you know, that word scares everybody. And um, what's interesting too, is in the last 15 years, a lot of the people getting into sustainability related professions come from more of a financial or an insurance background or uh, risk assessment background. Mm. And the whole realm of ESG, environmental, social, government governance, is more around mitigating risk rather than about you know architecture and engineering. It's it's looking at managing those risks. And what's great about what's happening just in the last two years is every time I open LinkedIn or Facebook or turn on the TV, it's all about sustainability jobs. And yeah. the thing is. I think the biggest hurdle we have now is that every job is a sustainability job. Like every company is hiring people to focus on ESG and sustainable strategy. And we're getting inundated with calls, like because we have sustainability in our, the name of our company, yeah. uh, sustainability consultants, people think, Oh, well, we'll just call me and green and they'll solve everything for us. But really it has to be embedded in every aspect of your business. And, you know, with real estate companies, it's in managing your existing assets and your new developments, your capital improvement program, you know, all yeah, it has to be kind of a thread that's um, woven through every department or service within your portfolio. Yeah. So um, the risk side and the financial side of a thing, uh, you know, concerns people. And then the other end of it is the legislation. So you know, with the Irish Climate Action Bill now and the EU um, regulations and the, the UN Sustainable Development Goals, all of these things are kind of pointing in the same direction. And at this point now, it's get on the, the train before, you know, everybody has to get on it. Um, yeah, because, don't be caught napping, basically. Yeah. yeah, you want to kind of be one step ahead of the regulations, because once you're um, required to do these things, you need to have the systems in place to address it. So I think what you're seeing now is a lot of the kind of more forward thinking organizations are saying, okay, let's get, let's upskill ourselves now so that we're ready to go when, when this becomes uh, mandatory. Yeah. It's something that I've been watching very closely. Um, I mean, because I'm running East Point, I'm in regular daily kind of contact with all the big corporate occupiers here. And so for the last four years, uh, it's just been a continuous stream of requests for information, whether it's the amount of energy that they're using it, whether it's renewable, 
where their sort of uh, wastewater goes, all of these guys. And, and what they're doing is they're filling out corporate social responsibility audits and mm. they, you know, they're required to do all this. But one thing that I've noticed is that on the big corporate side, yes, it's very, very front and center in all their thinking. But outside of that, um, in terms of, say, the, the more kind of mainstream investors that are buying houses and renting them out and things like that, you don't see any kind of a focus on this. And I'm curious, you know, what do you think the roadmap ahead looks like for, you know, regular people that own houses and investors who buy property and rent them out? Like, what do you think the next five years looks like for those people? Is there change ahead for them? Do they need to start making some serious sort of advanced thinking about investment and and things like that? Well, you know, it's interesting because I, I'm a homeowner myself and I, I have a house and I, you know, have looked into decarbonizing my own home and uh, it's not easy. And because you, you do have to have some capital, you have to have some upfront capital and you have to know, you know, who to call to get a quote and to see if you're eligible for grants. And even in my case, you know, I've applied for grants. I've gotten people out to give me a quote and and do an assessment of my house, but it's you know it's a very long process and and you're an expert who knows what you're doing <laughs> exactly and you know I live in an estate where there's 46 houses built at the same time and when I had the guy out to my house I said look I feel really silly like why should all 46 of us have to call you <laughs> like yeah can't you just do all 46 houses at the same time and he was like what <laughs> like why not they're all they're all built at the same time they all have the same issue they all need their windows and doors replaced and but he, he need... wants to get paid 46 times <laughs> right so you know but that's i think people have to start thinking a jump scale jumping like yeah you're not going to solve the problem on your own you might be able to do some things at home you know within your own scope of what you can control but i would encourage people to think more on a community basis what can we do in our estate or in our town and those are really successful stories like mm. in, i live in tipperary and there's the tipperary energy agency and they basically help entire communities you know um look at renewables and putting renewables on roofs, but doing it at a larger scale. And that, that way they can avail of more funding. And um, so, you know, I would just encourage communities to do more action as a group rather than individually, Um, because individually it would just be so repetitive and inefficient for everyone to have to go and make the same phone calls. Um, it makes sense for, you know, using your, you as an example, you've got yeah. 46 houses that you go make the call, the guy comes in, does the assessment or whatever, yeah. and then you can actually go and pass well, the information on to the 46, uh, the 45 other. Exactly what we're doing. Um, I'm now, uh, now that I have the quote for it and everything, I'm, you know, going to my neighbors and we have a residence association and saying, look, here's a, a, a pretty good you know, estimate of what it would cost each of you. And if we can go in with five houses or 10 houses or 15, we get a bigger discount, the more houses we get in. The scale of economy, yeah. And then they get the marketing of, you know, they can say, look, we, we took this whole development and flipped it around. And, you know, that has more marketing value to them as well. 
Yeah, there's actually, you can see how this thing could grow um, mm-hmm. for everybody. It's a benefit for everybody, essentially. Yeah. And, and what do you, I mean, what do you make of the, I mean, using the Irish example, the, the, you know, the, the recent plan, the environmental action plan, um, the, the 500,000 houses that they're talking about retrofitting and the 28 billion price tag that's on it. I mean, what are your views on that? I mean, how, how is that going to be implemented given how slow the process is and how, what you've just identified as one of the issues? Yeah. Well, unfortunately, now it's a good idea to want to retrofit 500,000 homes. In terms of the scale of the impact, um, there's only so much you can do to improve each existing home. Like you can only put in so much insulation and and put in the most efficient systems and you still have uh, that home. It's not like that home is getting to to completely net zero energy. It's it's an incremental change in the energy use of those homes. So it's kind of like a big effort with a very little impact from a sustainability standpoint. Now, there's other benefits of that um, beyond just reducing carbon emissions and reducing utility bills. There's like other benefits of going in and retrofitting homes because maybe they're improving air quality or you know th- some other aspect of the health of the occupants. Um, you know, one of the things that's debatable in Ireland is the use of burning wood burning or coal burning in the house. Yeah, I don't burn any fossil fuels in my house. Like. It's and funny, yeah. Most people good. do. And so even if you're going to retrofit these 500,000 homes, are they still burning? That's what I was going to ask you. Yeah, because <laughs> I get, I, it's funny, though, because I can actually, you know, I can relate insofar as growing up here in Ireland as a, te- you know, as a child, I can remember, you know, the, the, the living in a cold, damp kind of a house. Uh, the house that I grew up in was like 100 years old or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, no, not no proper insulation or anything. So what was hap- naturally happened was that the fire got lit probably from around mid-November and right through till the end of February, probably. And, uh, and you had a fire every single day and we'd all sit in the, in the sitting room and, 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 and you know, sit in front of it and watch TV or whatever as a family. Yeah. And you're, you're asking now with this 500,000, like, to do it properly, you're really asking people to block up their existing fireplaces. Um, that's what, if, if you're really going to have an impact, that's what you'd have to do. Stop yeah. burning things in your home. Yeah, and exactly. And I just, can... I'm curious to know how many people would actually, you know, voluntarily give that up. Uh, I wonder yeah, how much of you... this is going to have to be the government, you know, basically. There's like this, I, as I've said before, there's the stick and the carrot. Yeah. You know, the, the carrot is the is the grants, but the, there's going to have to be a stick somewhere exactly. as well. And they're going to have to. Well, I think at the same time that they're looking at the uh, retrofitting homes, we have to look at the existing buildings, commercial buildings. Yeah, That's where there's a huge opportunity. Like when you look in Dublin or Galway or Limerick or Cork and you see all those office buildings that are, you know, there's an interesting kind of thing that happens with the life cycle of buildings because in the last hundred years, buildings that are built are built for like a 50 year lifespan. And actually the systems in them are only built for 30 years. Yeah. So any building that's more than 30 years old is completely uh, out of obsolete. context, obsolete. Yeah. And so 
what I would say is looking at the age of buildings, you know, almost looking at any buildings that are between like 30 and 50 years need to be completely retrofitted and decarbonize all, you know, take out all fossil fuels out of the buildings, uh, go all electric. There are a few buildings in Dublin that in the last few years, they've done that successfully and they're really happy with it. So um, there's a huge impact or, or a huge um, uh, reduction in carbon by doing some of those things on the larger buildings that, you know, you would need to do that on a hundred homes to have the same impact. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I think if these things happen simultaneously, I'm not saying that we shouldn't be retrofitting homes, but at the same time, we have to address the office buildings that are the gas guzzlers, you mm. know, they're the inefficient. Well, buildings. I think I, my, my, the only kind of, the upside to that, I guess, is that from my perspective, I, I see the the office sector and the big office owners and the developers and so they are very much paying attention to this. And they're mm -hmm. all starting to look at it. And the amount of projects I'm aware of where people are, you know, doing you know changes to the building. And we mm -hmm. we have one or two buildings here in East Point that we're currently looking at that um, they, they're becoming vacant. And rather than trying to let them on the basis of they, the way they've been handed back to us, we're looking at now large refurbishment projects where you're putting in you know all of the, the the stuff that needs to be done to bring it up to say an a3 rating on the be or scale and i know in the uk they they, they refer to the epc scale but um um do you think uh, i mean most buildings that were built kind of 20 and 30 years ago the rating you're talking about is kind of a c rating probably if not yeah. lower mm -hmm. it's going to be quite i think that the government have brought in this thing where you they cannot rent anything below an A3 is that is that right I think so uh, yeah it might be the government agencies I know that they are one of the drivers of what's happening with new buildings and um, you know that the the Irish government itself and also a lot of U.S. multinationals have a corporate policy where they say we will not uh, lease space in a building that isn't lead gold or lead platinum or you know they may have a different metric that they're using because um the ber rating is specific to ireland and yes. some of the multinationals use lead or bream as a benchmark just because it's more globally um applicable but the idea is that if this is becoming part of everyone's corporate strategy and therefore yeah. in order to attract tenants the buildings have to be up to par so it, that's actually what you're talking about at east point is perfect the perfect opportunity to kind of, you know, if you have a tenant, um, you know, you're near the end of a lease term and a space is going to be occupied, rather than just trying to get another tenant in right away, use that time to retrofit the building, decarbonize the building, electrify it, um, you know, put in all the energy efficiency measures you can before you get the next tenant in. Yeah. And so, you know, I think that people like, you know, to speak to people who have like a real estate portfolio, um, you know, I would say the first order of business is to look at your your older assets where the leases are about to end. Expire, yeah. Yeah, and, and put in something for capital improvements on those projects, even before you look at new buildings. Because let's say you have a client with 10 buildings in Dublin and they want to build a, an 11th one. I would say, well, before you even start designing that 11th one, you know, do something to some of your existing buildings so that, 
because as soon as you built that 11th building, you're adding carbon. Yeah. Right. By the nature of building, like the embodied carbon in that building, the whole carbon footprint of getting all those materials to the site and building that building, even before you turn the lights on or the air conditioning on, you've used so much carbon just to build yeah. that building. So for companies that are saying, oh, we're, we're designing net zero carbon buildings, well, look at the existing buildings. You have to offset that. You have to uh, take carbon out of the existing buildings before you start adding carbon to your new buildings. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a, uh, I suppose, a kind of a, round, a more rounded vision of your portfolio rather than just looking at adding new space. You have yeah. to look at the existing yeah. and the impact. And um, yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it, all right? Um, it's almost like carbon accounting. You know, you have to kind of put it in the balance and say, okay, if I have 10 buildings and they're using this much carbon, I'm adding an 11th one. If I'm saying I'm going to get to net zero carbon by 2030, how am I going to do that if I just keep adding, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like something's got to be reduced somewhere along the line. Yeah. And in terms of embodied carbon, that's something that I've heard more and more talking about. And obviously the COP26, there was a lot of talk about, you know, carbon neutral by 2030 and things mm. like that. Do you, what are your views on, on the likelihood of that? I saw a lot of pushback from governments and they don't want to accept the painful decisions that are ahead of them. Um, I mean, I can see in, here in Ireland, in order to reduce our methane, for example, we have to ask the the agricultural you know mm-hmm. community to to adjust, adjust in a big way the way they live and things like that so mm. do you think that this is an awful lot of talk and less um real action on the ground well i think you know it's interesting because you know everyone thought oh we're we're doing really well at reducing the operational carbon of buildings like when you get into new buildings now we know what we need to do. We have all the tools and the resources we need to make the, the most beautiful net zero carbon new building uh, with no fossil fuels and renewable energy on the roof and lots of daylight. And um, But we're not as well equipped to deal with embodied carbon. And partly why is it involves every sector of the supply chain. Mm. So like the building construction industry in terms of operating the building is, you know, involves a few um, pieces of the supply chain. But to go back all the way to the source of raw materials, to how they get manufactured and how they're assembled and brought to the site, there's so many different players that I think it's just this hard thing for people to get their head around. What exactly are you asking us to do? And we get calls from people who supply Uh, raw materials for cement mixes and they're saying okay how do I get my raw material uh, to have an environmental product declaration so that it can be used by this concrete mix designer so it can go into your zero carbon building and it's connecting all those dots that's really difficult Um, but what what is happening uh, with the the increased kind of awareness and discussion at the EU level and at COP26 is that countries are starting to require that you measure your embodied carbon, which is the first step because you can't control, we can't measure. So like if I were to say, well, what's the embodied carbon of, uh, of one of the buildings that you, that you manage, 
you know, we don't even know what that is, right? Mm, so yeah. the first step is to just uh, calculate what is the embodied, embodied carbon footprint of this building and disclose it. And so France and Ireland and, and probably one by one over the next year, you'll see every country adopt um, a mandate for doing life cycle assessments, LCA, where you measure the embodied carbon footprint of the building. And just by reporting that number, and it might say, you know, it's this many tons of CO2, what that does is it creates kind of a baseline or a benchmark. And so they can say, okay, well, actually, let's reduce the embodied carbon footprint. And how do you do that? You have to go all the way back down through the supply chain and talk to every supplier about how can we reduce the carbon footprint of, of this product. Mm. Now, those things are happening, um, you know, in Canada and the US, they're a little bit ahead of us. Um, there are some things like Carbon Cure is a technology that was in the New York Times last summer. And right. Carbon Cure is where you can inject carbon into concrete as you're making the concrete. And so it actually captures that carbon in the concrete block. So you're taking and, it out of the environment. And putting it into the concrete. And it's like, like a carbonated beverage. It's like the concrete is becoming sparkling right, right. <laughs> and and it's got carbon in it and it gets encapsulated and it actually breaks down so you know there's a concern well what happens when that concrete when the building's disassembled well by then it's 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 um it's broken down into different forms it's not okay. co2 anymore um yeah it's a little bit like what the, the concern that people have about the permafrost up in Siberia and the fact that there's so much methane embodied in that and yeah. if global warming raises above a certain point and that starts to to defrost basically that we'll have this massive uptick in methane we could yeah so then what do we do with that you know can we capture that methane and use it somehow or fuel yeah for the cars <laughs> exactly so i i guess let you know, on the embodied carbon, you know, is, you know, it's, it's kind of following on a slower um, pace than operational carbon, but it, it's coming down the road. And I would tell people like in 2022, every time you look on LinkedIn, you're going to see something about one click LCA or embodied carbon and, and uh, the requirements for, uh, you know, looking at operational and embodied carbon in buildings. And we're going to see a lot more of that coming down the line. Yeah, I well, I definitely know that the the corporate sector are very much looking at all this. Yeah, it's, it's more the, and I and I suppose given what we've talked about, it's probably more important um, that the larger guys are because the size of the buildings they are the the big burners. But I, I I try to you know have a takeaway for our you know the smaller investors that are out there buying stuff. Uh, you know, if you're buying a house. And it's, it, you know, you're getting it at a good price because it's a, you know, a certain age and the building is obviously not in, you know, particularly good uh, from a, from an energy performance rating, um, try to kind of convince them that they should be, you know, considering this because at some point in the future, certainly my view is that going back to that, you know, analogy of the carrot and the stick that in order to actually achieve the government, the government's kind of, um, uh, the things that they've gone out there and made promises around mm. that they're going to have to start forcing people to adopt this as opposed to it being, oh, look, you can get grants and you can attract people in. I think there'll either be sort of 
in the form of taxation, or there will be, you know, they'll just ban certain types. I mean, I know that gas-fired central heating now and oil-fired central heating is no longer going to be, you know, you can't sell it. Mm-hmm. And at some point, you won't be able to refurbish your, your existing equipment in the house. So you'll have to go and buy new stuff. So hopefully yeah. that will change. But I think there's a there's a lack of awareness, I think. By, well, you could by take um, the lighting industry as, an ex- as a success story. Like yeah, 20 sure. years ago, we had incandescent bulbs. And, uh, um, you know, there was a ban on incandescent bulbs. And everybody thought, how are you going to do that? <laughs> like, you just you have to ban it. Like you just yeah, ban it. And yeah. then, um, then we had fluorescence and then it went to led lighting. And even just, you know, seven years ago, maybe in Ireland, when we were talking to people about led lighting and they were saying, Oh, it's so expensive. Should I really be doing led lighting? And the answer is yes. Yeah. And absolutely. then, you know, now if you were to go into a new building, you would just assume it had LED LED, lighting yeah so like there are success stories of like complete transformations in a specific industry so you know it's very possible that something like carbon cure where you just encapsulate carbon in the concrete block becomes the norm yeah and the only way it's going to happen is by regulation or by the major industrial suppliers buying into it voluntarily So, you know, you always have to start with like, who are the top five? And if they buy into it, then everybody else kind of needs to follow because they lead the competition. Mm. And And also the investors, the fact that that these major guys, their shares are, you know, for sale on the stock Mm -hmm. market. The major investors are not going to be buying those shares unless these guys are able to, to demonstrate that that's what they're now doing. Right. Or if you have a developer who has made a commitment to get to net zero carbon by 2030, and we're in 2022. He's got eight years. So the building that they're building in two or three years, you know, has yeah. to be kind of compliant. So it also is the architects and not to, you know, I t- didn't mean to not mention them, but the architects and the, the specifiers um, have a huge influence. And I say this coming from the architecture background, that large architectural practices have a huge influence on the supply chain because those manufacturers regularly ask architects, what are you looking for? What's, you know, what are your clients asking for? And they, they're kind of a conduit back to the supply chain to say, well, this is what everybody's talking about. Do you have, you know, does your um, uh, ceiling system have an environmental product declaration? And if the architect doesn't ask, nothing happens. So, you know, they, everybody plays a role in this and we all have to be, we all have to become sustainability advocates. Mm, yeah. Um, I'm just watching the time and Ali, I think what we'll do, uh, usually I ask um, my guests, you know, in terms of your, your perspective and in your career and things like that, like, what advice would you give to young people that are coming out of university and college and, and looking at a career in the construction sector or something like that? I mean, given what you've, been through and the fact that you were able to chart your own course is there any guidance that you would give to younger people in that regard i would say take it take advantage of uh whatever academic um opportunities are available to you while you're in university so like i said earlier in the conversation that two of the best courses i took were outside of my major so interdisciplinary um learning is 
so useful and valuable later in life more than you'll think. So if you have an opportunity to take a class in a different department than what you're specializing in, do it. Um, Cause you'll get a fresh perspective and the other, even from the other students in the class, they might have different majors and you get a different perspective on, you know, they're coming at something from a different viewpoint. And, you know, once you get into the workplace, it's harder to get those interdisciplinary interactions. So kind of take advantage of the academic environment while you can and kind of uh, um, kind of open your eyes to other ways of thinking about other disciplines. Um, yeah, because once you join a big firm, you get pigeonholed a lot yeah, of the time. Then yeah. that's it. That's your path. Then you're there. And, and it, there's actually less time for continuing education as you as you go further along. And then when you have kids, you know, there's no time. So um, I'd say before before settling down and have kids uh, sponge up as much knowledge as you can uh, multi uh, across disciplines and um, maybe even work in a field other than your um, you know, what, what's your primary career path, you know, take a job that you wouldn't think would be your favorite you know what you would what would be your ideal career path um you know when I went to work at Gensler I wasn't really thrilled because I thought oh I want to work for like uh IM Pei or Caesar Pelly or, or the big um, names the star, yeah, architect, the star thought, architects as they yeah <laughs> the star architects and I thought no no I'll, I'll go to Gensler and I'll just I'll I'll you know see what's going on there and there was so much going on in different sectors that I had never even thought about like workplace design and you know health and wellness in the workplace and how our workplace um, influences everything about our lives and you know as an architect you know I was learning more about um, building design from an external perspective and I hadn't really thought about the occupants and so working in a place where it was very much focused on the occupants, you know, gave me a different perspective. So I would just say, welcome the different perspectives and then uh, kind of correct course as you go along. Yeah, correct course. Uh, that's yeah. a good, uh, some good advice there, Anneli. Thank you so much. And if people wanted to, to learn more about, you know, this, are there any resources that you think are particularly useful for kind of opening your mind to sustainability and things of that nature? Yeah, um, I would say, you know, for everyone should become familiar with the UN Sustainable Development Goals. There's 17 UN Sustainable Development Goals, and I think they are what's going to drive us for the next decade. And so everyone should get familiar with that. And it's it's really well done. And there is so much, um, to, you know, embedded within that framework. The other thing is um, Paul Hawken came up with a book uh, just last year in 2021. He published a book called Re Re The Regeneration, Ending the Climate Crisis in One Generation. Okay, interesting. And it's very well done. And it's there's a lot of lots of photos. So if you don't like heavy reading, <laughs> it's good. It, for there's that. also a lot of good photos and graphs. And um, you know, it's 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 a very easy read, but you know, you, you read this book and you think, well, well, there you go. All the answers are right there. Well, like can you, you just give us the name of that book? It's again? called Regeneration, Ending Re the Climate Crisis in One Generation. Okay. By Paul Hawken. Talking, yeah, and I'll then put, definitely I'll, follow Greta Greta Thunberg on Facebook. Oh yeah, Greta, I yeah. <laughs> love Greta. She is the voice of a generation, and uh, 
you know, we need more Greta's, more people speaking up. The younger generation has such an opportunity to just have a collective voice and tell us what to do. <laughs> so, yeah. um, and then, you know, I know it's, it's from a long time ago, but, um, you know, Al Gore also wrote a book called Our Choice. Um, and that book came out in 2009. Yeah. It's called Our Choice. And it's such an easy kind of explanation of we have a choice. We can do something that's not going to improve things or we can do something that is going to improve things. And, and all the choices are right in front of us. And so if we can kind of get uh, the young professionals coming into the industry to think in that term, in those terms, then, you know, it'll, it'll uh, influence all the, all the different industries. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. Well, Nelly, thanks so much for your time today. I'm going to put a a link to, if somebody wanted to kind of connect with you or something like that, what's the best way to find you? Um, On my email address or, uh, you know, it's, it's nread at mehingreen.ie. Okay, I'll, yeah. I'll I'll put a, a link in the in the show notes so people can reach right. out if they if they if you have questions or anything like that. Sure. Right, Thank Nelly. You. Thanks so much for your time. And, Thank uh, you. Talk to you again Happy soon. Happy New Year. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Behind the Facade. If you enjoyed the show or found it in any way useful, please take a moment to leave a review over on iTunes or alternatively share the episode out on social media or with a friend this really helps the podcast reach more people if you have any questions or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes please connect with me via my facebook group that's called behind the facade community and from now on you're going to see me posting pretty much daily over on my youtube channel gavin j gallagher so do check out that out and become a subscriber over there but if you're not a fan of youtube you can continue to stay up to date with all of the projects and stuff i'm working on by joining my tribe and becoming part of my email list. And you'll find that over at gavinjgallagher.com. All right, guys, that's all for now. See you back here next week.